I thought what we'd do, because some of you might not have been here last week, and I think that overview is so awesome, I'm going to play it one more time for you. Okay, some of you are like, well, we've already seen it. Well, you can see it again. It's, what, eight minutes long, okay? And it reminds you of the layout, which I think is so awesome, and the themes that run through Daniel. Did any of y'all print out the poster this last week? You overachiever, you. I love that, right? So now you have your own little cheat sheet that you can look at, and it's so good. So get online at the Bible Project. You can print out the overview of Daniel. I think it is super helpful as we are at this halfway mark between one through six, which are the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then Daniel 7 through 12, which are the visions of Daniel. Okay, so let's watch that real quick. The book of Daniel. The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, whose later name Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetric design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. 
They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that. And that that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. 
Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense, they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. There you go. That's the best overview ever. It's amazing. Uh, because how many people, what, do you want to teach chapter seven today? Because I'll let you. <laughs> how many people, I can honestly tell you, I avoided Daniel quite a bit because there was so much that I didn't understand and how many um, different ways I heard it taught to where for me it instilled all kinds of fear and angst of what was coming in the end and when it was coming and what I needed to watch for. But yet we're learning all the time that actually the book was written to bring what? Hope and encouragement. Uh, with a message that basically says that God wins and that our job is to endure and to remain faithful. And so I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying this book. All right. So we're going to delve into uh, chapter seven. Last week, I just kind of, I told you a little bit about the first part, but I'm going to start with chapter uh, with. Verse one, we're going to read through it. I'm going to quickly go over once again, a little bit of where I started and then we're just in. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Chapter seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirred up the great, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked 
Its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dimension, dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking great things. Yikes. Okay, did you dream that last night? That would be a bad dream. Maybe you ate Chipotle and you dreamed something like that. I don't know, but it's concerning. All right. So um, obviously you have seen that this is also paired. I don't want you to forget that with chapter what? Chapter seven is paired with chapter what? Two, which was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. All right. And you have the statue with these earthly empires that we looked at. So keep in mind, this dream is paired with that, although Daniel's having it. It begins, as we talked last week, where it says that the stirring up by the wind, the sea was stirred up by the winds. And that out of that came these beasts. And so last week I took you, I believe, to Isaiah 17, 12 and gave you an example of how this stirring sea, uh, this roaring waters represents. It is it's prophetic imagery that is used through the prophets and it represents these kingdoms that rise up. OK, um, earthly kingdoms, restless nations and. Um, all of this imagery, remember, makes sense to Daniel. Much of this imagery is like stock pictures for him. And so for a mind steeped in scriptures, it, it means something. We talked about the fact that isn't it interesting how different it is when you look at creation versus this dream. Right In creation, you have the spirit, which is synonymous often with breath or wind. Do you remember that? Hovering over chaos, uh, the abyss, uh, it's a disturbance. But we see that the Holy Spirit, when it breathes, it turns chaos into order and creates a home for humanity. In this case, it's a very different situation. This case, the winds are stirring up these nations who rise up and they become a parade of these ferocious beasts trampling over humanity. It is a very different picture here. Then he goes on to tell us that, and he's talking in metaphor. Do you know how, how we know that? He doesn't say it is a lion. He doesn't say it is a bear. He says it's what? Like a, so that's metaphor for you English people, right? Um, that it is like a lion with eagle's wings. And so last week we kind of went over and, and broke some of that up. Um, 
I showed you through scripture last week how Babylon was very often referred to as a lion. I took you to Isaiah 5, 26, and we read through, uh, we looked at Jeremiah 4, 7, Jeremiah 50, 17. We even see that um, in Jeremiah 48, 40, um, they're also referred to with eagles. So the imagery of the the uh the nation of Babylon was often a lion and an eagle. And so we looked at this, that obviously this first one is the empire of Babylon. Um, then he goes on uh, to talk about like a bear, right? And do you remember that it says that the bear was lifted up on one side? And so what was the empire that came after the Babylonians? This is just review. We talked about it last week. It's the Medo-Persian Empire, right? Who ended up really taking over? It's referred to mostly as the Persian Empire. So you have this bear, not as regal as the lion, but very powerful and ferocious. And you have this Medo-Persians, but the Persians are going to rise more to power, this Persian empire. And it says that they have three bones in, the bear has three bones in their teeth. Most people think that's the three great victories of the Persian empire, which would be Lydia, which is what we know as today as uh, Turkey. And it would be um, Babylon and Egypt. And then they continued on their way. And then the next one, and trust me, we're going to keep coming back to some of this. The next one is the what? Like a leopard. And when you hear leopard, what do you think about? Swift. And then you put some wings on his back. Matter of fact, you put four wings on his back and he also has four what? heads, and you think of the swiftness of the next empire, which was the empire of Greece, the Greeks, and their, uh, the leader of that empire was who? Alexander the Great. And he swiftly went through more territory than anyone before him. But the unique thing about Alexander the Great is that he died young. And when he did, he divided his empire amongst his four generals. And so many believe that this like a leopard falling in line with the vision of um, Nebuchadnezzar is the Greek empire. All right. Then there comes a fourth, what I call mega horrifying beast. And do you notice that Daniel does not liken it to anything? He just says it is a ferocious horrifying mega beast is what he is saying. And then do you remember what is unique about this beast? Had horns, 10 horns, and then it had this uh, one horn that uprooted three horns and it had the eyes of a man, right? So in other words, it had this intelligent ability of humanity, but it was still a beast. Okay, um, I want you to see something about the imagery of horns because the imagery of horns symbolizes power and strength. Okay, look at Psalm 75. I'm just going to read you a few verses out of Psalm 75. 
Look at verse 4, 4 and 5. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. (laughs) I should have quoted that to my children. (laughs) Excuse me? Are you speaking to me with haughty neck? Because that is unacceptable in this house. I love that. Y'all can use that now. Okay, go home to your kids and go, don't you talk to me with a haughty neck. Mm-mm. Verse 10, it says this, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So based on that, this symbolism of horn is basically neutral. Okay, it, it's, it's power and strength, but it can be used for the Wicked or, or for good, right? And so we find out later, and I laugh because my best friend is so sassy. If y'all think I'm sassy, you don't know. You really don't. And I'm the one that keeps her on the straight and narrow. And I tell her all the time, you better put, the, she always says, my horns are out. I go, you better put them back in because you're walking around with the Bible teacher. I cannot get arrested because of you. Like you're going to run something big. And so I always think of her when I get to this place because she's always saying my horns are out. So we all have horns, um, strength and power, and it can be used for wickedness and it can be used for good. But we find out through this dream, we are made aware that actually these represent kings or the powers of, or the leaders of these earthly kingdoms. That is what we're seeing here with all of these horns, okay? Remember, Daniel has been raised in this kind of imagery. Now, I skipped something that I thought was pretty important. Do you remember at the very beginning, it tells us the time? What does it say? In the first year of the reign of who? Belshazzar. So you guys, that's 10 years. So we've, we've gone back in time. I want you to realize that this is 10 years before that fateful feast where Belshazzar is going to be slain that night, the whole writing on the wall thing. This is 10 years before that. So it makes me think here you have Daniel during that time laying in his bed. I wonder what he's stressing about. Well, We know how Belshazzar ended up, right? As arrogant as the day is long. I mean, the writing on the wall came down and we saw no uh, bowing of the knee or no humility. Um, Actually, we saw an incredible amount of pride. What else do we see about Daniel by the time there was the writing on the wall? How influential was he at that moment in the empire of Babylon? Maybe not so much in the in the actual courts, because do you remember when the writing came down on the wall, the only one who really remembered him or said, hey, I know a man that we need to bring in here was the queen mother, right? Who most believe was the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And so somewhere along the way, I'm just saying, write this in pencil. This is just my deal. Um, Had Daniel's influence in this now, I mean, he'd been through the entire story with Nebuchadnezzar. Speaking in, and there was this, there was this something between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. It grieved Daniel when he had to share things with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a beast in the field, finally humbled himself, and then he rose up and he literally worshiped the one true God. Daniel had been through all of that. And I would imagine that Daniel at the end of that would have liked to have tied a bow on that. And they all got back to Israel. 
But that's not what happened. There were years in between. We talked about the different kings that took over in between. And now he's looking at Belshazzar, which comes from, he's not Nebuchadnezzar's son, but he's from that line. And now he is facing this new arrogant young king and he's laying in his bed. And what do you think he's thinking? How long, oh God, right? Just when you think it cannot get any worse, what happens? It does. It does. Then you watch the news today and you go berserko because you think you actually liked this guy in the past and you've been um, comparing everything new to this guy in the past. And then you find out that the guy in the past that you like so much wasn't a great guy either. And then you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on around here? And then you look and you think, oh, just when it can't get any worse, what happens? It does. And so he's weary. I think he's laying on his bed and he's weary. And he's, in, he's endured. He's remained faithful. He's been the greatest influence in the Babylonian kingdom. But he's tired and he's trying to hold on and understand the promises of God. And all this is on his mind. And God gives him this vision. And although this vision in some ways seems super upsetting. What is it saying? At the end of the day, I will destroy the beast. There is going to be a procession of beast, but don't you worry. I'm going to destroy the beast. Hold on to hope. I believe Daniel is thinking, how long, O Lord, which you see, hear that cry also in uh, Revelation 6.10, how long, O Lord? And he's thinking, if you're the true king, then how long is it going to take for you to come back and vindicate your people? Look at verse nine. It says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Why do I want to sing? I went down in a burning ring of fire, right? I don't know. We can't get too serious. I mean, this is serious stuff. His throne was fiery flames. His wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand, thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. All right, let's see if we can at least summarize this section a little bit. It's a new scene, right? It's a courtroom scene. Uh, there is the main character is referred to as the what? The Ancient of Days, all right, which I think is the most brilliant way to describe the Eternal One, the God of Israel. So you have all of these beasts in this dream. You have all these beasts running around full of destruction, along with this last beast with all of its horn trampling over the innocent, destroying everything in their wake. And then you have God show up in this scene as a consuming fire with all judgment and glory. And he sets up his court. 
He opens his official record in front of how many people? Countless. That's the point. Countless witnesses that are there. And yet in all of this court scene, as he's watching it, do you see that he gets distracted? Daniel gets distracted. What does he get distracted by? The horn, that, that horn. Yet Daniel was distracted because one of the horns, even now in the courtroom of the ancient of days, was still running his mouth in boastful rebellion. Does that tell you? The beast never bowing the knee, even now when confronted by the ancient of days, running its mouth. The beast then was destroyed. So this is an overall summary, right? It's like we're going to get information and then we're going to go back and chew on a little bit more. We get information. So don't consider this like this. Is your dream linear? Do you dream linear? Or do you dream something, then you go back and part of the dream goes back to that part and you dream a little more in that section. That's kind of what's happening here. But here we're getting this summary that bottom line, what happens to the beast? The beast is destroyed. And then it says the other beasts remain for a time. Okay, so we have the courtroom. The Ancient of Days shows up like a consuming fire. There are countless witnesses. He has the official book. And no matter what's happening over here as a distraction, at one point, what will happen? He will destroy the beast, period. And that's what we, that's what we need to know. Keep reading verse 13. It says, I saw in the night vision... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom. One that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so we have a new scene. We're still saying like, okay, so we're going to look at that, but like what? The son of man. Okay, that word man is the word Adam or what? Adam. Okay, it is the exact same word in Hebrew and Aramaic. So there's no confusion. Okay, and so basically he is saying, I see a human one. It's what he is saying. And he says, like the son of man. So we're going to see that there is deity and humanity because we're going to see that he is given all authority. He has is given sovereign power. And here's the kicker too: he will be what worshiped. God does not share his glory with another. Okay. So this is a human one, but he is God. And he is going to have an eternal kingdom. After the beast is destroyed, Daniel seeds a human one. And what direction does he go? He is coming up with the clouds to be presented to the ancient of days. That's really important. I just want you to see that. Okay. This is not him coming to earth. This is him going up 
to the ancient of days before that throne and he is given dominion and he is being worshiped. He is given an everlasting kingdom. Okay. So remember that when he is seated at the right hand of God, the father. All right. So who, who do the beasts represent? Talk to me, people. The nation earth, the empires of the earth. Okay. And basically the horns represent who? Kings. Okay. Kings. And, and in some ways it can be kingdoms within empires. Okay. So the Kings um, that are ruling. So who do you think the son of man then represents? <laughs> yeah. I love asking y'all. I wish y'all could sit up here because you're kind of afraid Right. To answer me, which is so funny, because what do you think I'm going to do? Come down there, and beat you. I mean, what? But it, it goes Jesus, 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 <laughs> all across because somebody started it over here and they go, well, she's going to guess uh, we're going to follow her. I mean, come on. If you get asked a question in Sunday school, isn't the answer Jesus? OK, so <laughs> and here's the thing. This is really important because it is a title that Jesus actually uses for himself. Okay. It is not a title that they use for him because they actually, we're going to see this more later when I truly apply this to us, but they used the Christ, Messiah, King, anointed one. Now, I think it's interesting. Why did Jesus not use those titles for himself? I think it is because those titles were so skewed in understanding by this time that he wanted them to fully understand who he was. And so he used the son of man. Okay. And we're going to come back to that. The son of man, because when he used that term to people steeped in scripture, with all of this knowledge and imagery, imagery, trust me, they knew exactly who he was claiming to be because they're going to kill him. All right. So the points that we have so far is that there is going to be a judgment. There will. The beast will be destroyed. Who gets the final word? The ancient of days. Okay, God. There is a final courtroom. The official books will be open. It doesn't matter what's flapping over here. It will be done. The beast will be destroyed. We know that. We know that someone like the son of man will come. Okay. And we also know it says, uh, la, 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 la. Well, I'll see that in a minute. We're going to see that the saints will receive the kingdom. Okay. So we know that so far. Keep reading. Verse 15. Do you understand how much you could read about this chapter? Just so you know. So if any of this interests you, there are books and books and books. I'm going to just kind of teach you the overview of the different things. And then I'm going to apply it in a much different way. And hopefully it will mean something. As for me, Daniel, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Well, I can understand that. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. Isn't it interesting that Daniel couldn't interpret his own dream? But boy, he could interpret everybody else's, right? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. 
These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's so awesome. He went to the one being present and he asked, or one of the beings present, he asked. So they said, there are four great beasts where the kings or kingdoms of the world, but the saints of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So I want you to see this connection. Okay. Because in the section we just saw who actually received the king kingdom and was given dominion in an eternal kingdom. One like the son of man. Okay. But yet here it's in a way it's used synonymously with who? The saints. Okay. That makes sense because every group, right? He is their representative of that people. He is their king. He is the true king. And so the king will rise and take dominion over his kingdom. And because of him, right, the saints will receive the kingdom. How long? Forever and ever and ever and ever. And so I, I want to make sure we see that. So in, in general, Daniel has a dream about how God's holy people get trampled and persecuted by the beast. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse... The beast is destroyed and God's holy, faithful people are vindicated and exalted. That's awesome. Now, let me ask you, where have we seen stories like this? People. Well, yeah, Galatians, but what have I been teaching you all these weeks? We've been seeing stories like this in Daniel 1 through 6. Have we not? All right. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, all of these things that when the beast, right, seems like they will win, what happens? God intervenes. He will rescue and vindicate and elevate his people, right? But then we have this element with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they said, but even if he what? doesn't, we will not bow down. And so we're going to see that there is a continuation of beasts and God will not always save us, right? From persecution. We have evidence of that throughout history about how uh, people, Christians have been martyred more today than ever before. But what do we know? He may not save you from persecution. He'll save you through persecution. And no matter what, he will vindicate and elevate his people. And one day the beast will be what? Destroyed. So Daniel has been telling us these stories. And now we're going to see the visions of Daniel come true. All right. Does that make sense? I hope so. (laughs) <laughs> so if Dan- I'm doing the best I can, this is a hard chapter. So if Daniel's question laying in his bed was how long God, uh, do you lay in your bed? I'm going to tell you what, I can hardly take a deep dive because I get overwhelmed with what is going on. Because if you really look and you look deep enough, it's atrocious. The wickedness in our world. It's overwhelming. And you lay in your bed and you're like, how long, God, are you going to put up with this? How long 
till wickedness is judged. How much innocent? I mean, and you think that, and the answer today is the answer that he gave Daniel then, and that is what? Not forever. Not forever. Look at verse 19 through 28. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that can also mean haughty, okay, prideful things. And that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Keep in mind, keep in mind, This is imagery. And do you see how it's set up? It's poetry. Do you see the indentions? I I just want you to know that. Be careful making prophetic imagery and poetry literal. Okay? Because I'll give you one example. If, If you talk about, anytime you talk about doom or judgment, or you're gonna hear imagery of, clouds and the sun and the moon falling from the sky. I can tell you when I lost my son, I could have described my life that way. The sun and the moon and the stars fell from the sky. If you were going to write it. So I, I just want you to be aware of that. You know, when you watch different movies and all of a sudden the sun and the moon and the stars literally fall from the sky. And that's how we talk about end time. So just be, be careful with that. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion of the greatest of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. I mean, literally, the color came out of his face. And I kept, kept the matter in my heart. Ugh. Okay, this is pretty intense. And when I was thinking about teaching, I thought, I I literally wrote in my notes, we came here with all kinds of burdens today. (laughs) Like, I don't know where you guys are or what you're dealing with. And then we open this chapter, right? About an ancient man and his dreams with all kinds of imagery and verbiage and symbolism. And should Daniel be a book of fear? With us trying to figure out timelines and clues about the end of days to have this paranoia each time a new worldly leader takes over. No, 
I believe that this book is to foster hope because that's what it says it is here to foster. And so I believe that Daniel is looking out at the beasts of the world who uh, ruin and destroy each other. God's good world. The innocent are suffering and dying. And his message is that God won't tolerate this forever. He will destroy the beast and vindicate the righteous. Now, I'm going to tell you kind of the different schools of thought, because I know some of you are like, well, what does that mean? And what does that little phrase mean? I could be here for a year talking about all that. So I'm going to give you the generic um, ideas of these kingdoms, okay, Or, or how most people think it is. There is a group that have really, really intelligent people, okay, that think all of this is a train of kingdoms that started at Daniel's time period. So in other words, um, the first one would be the lion with the eagle's wings would be what? Babylon, okay, and I showed you a lot of that. And this makes sense when you pair it with chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image. Uh, the second one, the lep- I mean, the bear would be who? Medo-Persian Empire, right? The third, the leopard would be Greece, okay? And then comes the super mega beast that is not likened to anyone. Uh, there are people who are going to argue, and and by the way, remember, these visions build on each other, so you don't have all the information in chapter 7. You're going to get more detail as the visions go on. Just know this. But there are those that feel like the next would have been the Syrian empire. And from that, and that's when you see the end of the Greeks, um, and it's broken up into the different generals, and then what's going on in the world at that time, to where the Syrian empire rises up. And from that comes a man that I've taught you about before by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And I've talked to you about him, how foul he was, that he conquered Jerusalem. And you remember, because the Greeks wanted to do what? They wanted to Hellenize the world. They wanted you to be Greek. Well, during the Persian Empire, God's people got to come home. Well, what did they do? They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls, right? They rebuilt the temple under Zerubbabel. They rebuilt the walls under Nehemiah, which was miraculous that they were allowed to do that in another empire to be able to defend themselves again. And in Ezra, we know that they found the scrolls and there was a reading of the word and their hearts were literally filleted open and there was a revival amongst the people. And so they began to live according to the law. And so they refused to be Hellenized and they kind of got away with it until Antiochus Epiphanes showed up and said, no, you don't. And he was foul and he conquered Jerusalem. He made Jehovah worship illegal. He murdered thousands of Jews in the temple uh, courtyard. Remember I told you he sacrificed a pig on their altar. He erected a statue of Zeus in their temple. He, he, um, forced pork down the throats of the priests. He literally stopped the sacrificial system. Okay. So when it talks about the fact that he stopped the sacrifices, that he changed the times on the calendar, many believe this is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes. And that is um, interesting because do you remember when I taught you about the triumphal entry of Jesus? The true king coming in, riding on a donkey. Do you remember all the symbolism there? He was riding on a donkey because a donkey doesn't bring, it is not representing humility. A donkey was the royal mount, 
but it was the royal mount that you come in on when you're coming in peace and not war. And do you remember they were quoting um, messianic Psalms and they were waving palm branches. Do you remember this? I taught y'all this, okay? And that the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish independence. And it really became um, famous, per se, when Judas Maccabeus, under the Maccabees, rose up and fought against Antiochus Epiphanes, and they were able to win uh, the nation of, of Israel win their freedom and Judas Maccabeus rode in on his white stallion and they were singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were waving palm branches. So it's interesting that these two things are tied together when Jesus comes in, but he's riding in on a donkey and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're waving palm branches because they think that Jesus is going to be to Rome what Judas Maccabeus was to the uh, the Greeks, okay, or the Syrian king, and so you have all of that. They had an absolute earthly idea of the coming one that he would be another king of a great empire, but we're not seeing that kind of empire in this in this vision at all. Okay, others believe. That the fourth is basically Rome, which that lines up with the image of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the feet? You got 10 horns, 10 toes on the feet. You, do you remember it was iron and clay? It represented Rome because Rome was, yeah, extremely powerful, but their territory was so massive that they could not keep it cohesive. It fractured and, and broke apart. And so they believe it's Rome. And so they tie it into what happened under, um, basically starting with Nero and the collapse of the, uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and then finally under Titus. So you can go and you can read all of that stuff. Okay. But there is basically a line of thinking that is thinking these were historical empires of Daniel's time. You got that part? Okay. There is a different um, group of people filled with a lot of really smart people. Like, who am I? All right, I have my idea of what I think, but all I am is someone who could read all this crazy stuff and remember how I told you and just do Daniels for dummies because I, I'm just going to tell you, I, I'm not that smart. Very smart people disagree about this stuff, but what I do know is the beast is destroyed. Yay. So um, they don't believe this is something that has predominantly happened in the past, but that is something that still is predominantly to come in the future. Okay. And with them, it involves a series of events that will happen in and around Jerusalem. That is a prelude to Jesus's return. They believe that the Jewish people are going to be back in Jerusalem, that there will be a new temple, that there will be a new sacrificial system, and that this horn rises up as an antichrist that will try to take over the world. Okay. And um, there is a, a small section of this group of people who made a movie that I would never suggest that you watch called the Left Behind series. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just made y'all mad. No. Um, but here's the thing. 
<laughs> and I'm not going to tell you where I am in that. Well, you'll see because it'll come out. But today, I'm more, here's where I want, what I want to do. I'm more interested, honestly, in how Jesus used Daniel 7. Aren't you kind of interested in that? Because if he used it, how did he then use it? What was his main point of why he quoted Daniel chapter 7? And let's read where he does it. He does it more than one place, but he really does it here. This is where it's all seriously like gonna, I think, apply. So look at Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. It's really interesting to me. Because here we have another court scene. Oh, I'm not going to have a real good place to stop. I'm going to read it. Don't get all crazy. (laughs) But I got to figure out where I'm going to even just give you a teaser because this is the best part of all of it right here. Okay, Matthew 26, 57 through 64. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance. As soon as the courtyard of the high priests are going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Okay, first off, you can, I cannot read this without thinking of those leaders trying to kill Daniel. Do you understand what I'm saying? They didn't want to demote Daniel. They wanted to what? Kill him. And they were given huge lectures about unity. And what they were enforcing was what? Conformity. But at the end of the day, they didn't care about either one. Because what they really cared about is they could find no smut on Daniel to hold over his head so that they could have their power and their money and that he wouldn't mess it up. And so they concocted an entire false situation, making government and God's law clash because they knew if they could make that happen. If they could use law for their own political gain, if they could get him in that place, they could kill him and he would be thrown into the tomb, the pit of a lion, and he would be killed. Are you seeing this? these themes that run through? <clears throat> At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus says, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, from when on? From that moment on. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. That, okay, so what chapter in Daniel did he just quote? Chapter seven, right? This is a courtroom. A courtroom of men. What men? 
a religious courtroom. The high priest is there. <clears throat> all the council, all the priests are there. All the elders and the Sanhedrin, which is their law. They're all there. And they are about to execute him on what they know to be false charges. Tell us, are you the Christ? He says, you say so. Isn't it interesting that they're still asking him that? I put, for goodness sake, all evidence points to it. You would have to refuse to see it, not to see it. I'm going to say that one more time. If you were in my study of John, this should just be reminding you of things. You literally would have to refuse to see it, not to see it. Do you understand that is a theme in our world today? As you watch things where you are, I am screaming at the TV. When I watch, answer the guy's question. He is being logical, right? I watched the whole uh, video of what is a woman. I was about to take things off and throw it at the television. You have to refuse to see it, not to see it. Are you kidding me? I watched something the other day. I'm on a roll. Sorry. And I might edit this out. I don't know. But I watched something the other day. Okay, about the transgender situation. And this can be misconstrued, I don't care. But because I am a loving, loving person. But there are some things that are the most illogical junk I've ever seen in my life. Right? It has nothing to do with me loving and accepting you. I cannot uh, celebrate, first off, things that I, I do not agree with and think is right, but celebrate things that are just nonsense. There was a group, a couple of transgenders. There was a male who was identifying as a female. So he was the mother. There was a female who was identifying as a male. He's the father. So the father had the baby. All right. Okay. That makes sense because he is genetically a woman. So he had the baby. They have the baby, but the mother is attempting to breastfeed, who is genetically a male. And I sat there and I watched this and I go, okay, even if I was transgender, I'd be offended by this. And honestly, I think many of them are by some of the nonsense. This baby was starving to death. And they were sitting there going, we just believe it. And we're just going to keep trying. And I'm like, dude, you can try all day long. You're a man. You don't lactate. What is going on? At least get something, a contraption. Because your child is going to starve to death at the end of the day. I am, I'm telling you, you could absolutely go dig up some bones and the pelvic would show you if that is a gen, is genetically a woman. This has nothing to do with how you identify and how you live your life. I'm talking about X and Y and X and X and chromosomes. That's all I'm talking about. We So when you see here, there are certain things that are abs, just logical. Just logical. 
And Jesus has literally shown them every amount of evidence they could ever have. They have really gotten to the point, and it talks about it in John. You do not see because you refuse to see, and now you cannot see. That's what he says. He has shown them. I came and I preach good news to the poor. I've healed the sick. He commands creation. He can literally supernaturally feed the feeding of the 5,000 where he steps up and says, do you remember Moses? And there's one coming like Moses. I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and they died. If you eat of me, you will have eternal life. He stepped up in their own ceremonies in the Feast of the Tabernacle as they're doing the water libation, remembering the fact that Moses struck the rock and it says, and the angel of the Lord stood on the rock and he struck it and water came forth. And Jesus literally stands there and says, I am the living water. He stood in front of them when the candelabra in the Feast of the Tabernacles was lighting, had lit up Jerusalem. And he is standing in that location where they celebrate the glory of God above the tabernacle and the fact that it led them through the wilderness. And what does he literally say? I am the light of the world. If a man follows me, he will no longer walk in darkness. They have seen him raise the dead I am the resurrection and the life. They do not see because they refuse to see. So why are you asking me? Are you the Christ? Okay, you say so, because that's what you're worried about. That's all you're worried about. This earthly kingdom you have created. Am I going to come in and take over that? Oh, I'm here to do way more than that. And I'm just going to wet your whistle with this because we're done. I'm over four minutes. If Cindy Bergarello was here, she'd be like, okay. I want you to think about the correlation between what Jesus is quoting and who the players are in the dream. And we're going to come back to it. They're really only, I would say, I'm going to call them characters. Three characters in the dream of Daniel. There are the beasts, which represent what? Those who refuse to bow the knee and they become like beasts, empires. Okay. There is the ancient of days. Who is that? God. And there is one like the son of man who we know is the king of the saints, the representative of the saints. So let me ask you this. If Jesus in this courtroom is claiming to be the son of man, And we know who the Ancient of Days is. Who is he telling them they are? That's all I'm going to say, and I'm going to come back to that later. Because this, this is a whole new thing when we look at it. Okay? Aren't y'all excited to come back? It's good stuff. Keep going. I can't. Lord, thank you so much for today. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would... um, Really put all this in order, fill in any gaps I missed, um, erase anything I say that might not be right. Lord, I just pray that you would be the great teacher and counselor in this place. God, most important, Lord, as we're going to see in the future, we can see all this. And yes, Lord, we get righteous anger. But the fact is, 
I'm left here on this earth as a citizen of a heavenly kingdom that I only got citizen because one like the son of man gave his life for me. What Adam could not do and what the nation of Israel as God's firstborn could not do, you did. And when you did and you represented me and I bowed my knee to you in faith, I was granted entrance into that kingdom. And Lord, your kingdom is completely different. It's upside down. It's actually against in many ways, anything my flesh wants. It is a kingdom that will be built from self-sacrifice, from love. Everything you are, everything you showed us is what we are to be. It is our job to bring the kingdom of God to this earth by living as if we're already there. And so God help us do that because the only way we can do that is by humbling ourselves and giving you authority over our lives as the king. Because those who refuse to do that, there is not very much room, it seems, between humanity and beast. That is the theme that goes through. This is a story about two seeds. This is a story about two kingdoms. This is a story about the image of God, the image bearers of God, humanity versus the beast. And so, Lord, may we be the best version of the image of God. Man, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.